Welcome to the Public Lands Podcast, where we bring you information, entertainment, and conversation about your public lands and waterways. My name is Mark Peddleton. I'll be your host today. This week, we'll bring you the second and final segment of a two-week series on oil transportation, disasters related to oil trains, and the public risks historically incurred and potentially involved in current and future fossil fuel transportation. That comes in the form of an Access Minnesota interview of Christian Angelich. Also, this is the last podcast of the winter and spring season of 2018. This is the second year of the podcast, which I do in part as a supplement to a course called Environmental Communication. But to my surprise, I see that there are several hundred listeners outside of the course, so I want to say thanks for listening to those folks. As last year, I was not planning on extending the podcast past May. However, if there are some folks out there in the public audience who would like to keep it going and growing, drop me an email at pedalty at umn.edu. That's P-E-D-E-L-T-Y at umn.edu. We'll see what we can do together to build a public lands podcast into the future, if you'd like. Before moving on to the interview, as usual, a quick check-in to recent news impacting our public lands. According to a story written by Elvina Nawaguna of Roll Call and multiple other Capitol Hill reporters, the recently introduced 2018 Farm Bill would allow the EPA to approve pesticides without undertaking reviews now required to protect endangered species. If passed, the EPA would be allowed to skip consultations with agencies that include the Interior Department's Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service, which oversee the implementation of Endangered Species Act protections. For example, pesticides like chloropyrifos, malathion, and diazinon threaten a number of marine animals, but could become essentially unregulated under the new regime. Quote, it's a poison pill rider in the most literal and unfortunate way, said Jordan Giaconia, Federal Policy Associate for Defense at the Sierra Club. It takes just one harmful chemical to be injected into the ecosystem to cause widespread damage, he said, and the ramifications are pretty far-reaching. Now reading directly from Elvina Nawaguna's story, more than 60 agriculture groups in January wrote a letter urging agriculture committee leaders to include the provision in the bill, saying the current review and permitting requirements are, quote, redundant and that they provide no additional environmental benefit, but instead impose additional costs on farms and businesses. Environmentalists, however, see parallels between the language and the measure, the lobbying efforts by the chemical industries, and actions of EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. The Center for Biological Diversity said the provision, quote, essentially codifies, unquote, a request by Dow Chemical for Pruitt to ignore the harmful effects of pesticides on endangered species, and to gut their protections. As the Farm Bill and now Aguna's story indicates, the Trump administration has been an effective ally of the oil, petrochemical, and corporate agriculture interests like Dow Chemical. As I have noted before, when those interests come into conflict with the public interest and public lands, those of us entrusted with the mission of a public land grant university might feel obligated to voice our own concerns. Sadly, however, 
Companies like Dow have far greater reach and influence at universities, including public land-grant universities, than do the much less financially powerful nonprofit organizations that advocate in the public interest. For example, if you look at Dow Chemical's academic collaboration site, you'll see University of Minnesota listed as a primary partner. Essentially, UMN provides legitimacy and advertising to Dow in exchange for grants and other financial incentives. So when a company like Dow lobbies to gut the Endangered Species Act and make it easier to introduce harmful chemicals into our environment, we are ultimately part of that effort as well, and certainly not without blame. In order not to end the season on that note of concern, however, one positive story before moving into our final guest report, or in this case, guest interview. That potentially positive news comes in the form of research out of Portsmouth University, where scientists have found an enzyme that can dissolve polyethylene teraflatylate, or PEDs, the strong plastic found throughout the world's garbage dumps, landfills, oceans, store shelves, clothes, and everywhere else. That holds out hope that someday a solution might be found to the rapidly growing plastic oceans problem, for example. David Schuchman, BBC Science Editor, notes that, quote, The enzyme is a number of years away from being deployed on a widespread scale. It will need to degrade PET faster than its current time of a few days before becoming economically viable as part of the recycling landscape. And now part two of a special report on environmental risk and communicating such risks to the public. Access Minnesota brings us an interview with friend of the podcast, Christian Angelich. You're listening to Access Minnesota. Now, here's Jim Dubois. Christian D'Angelich is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about his research into the relationship between oil and violence. Specifically, we've been talking about the uh, disaster that occurred in 2013 in the Quebec town of Lac Magantic. And uh, 47 people died in that rail accident. Do you see the incident in Lac Magantic as a tragic disaster for one town? Or does this story speak to a larger problem of the oil industry and how we consume oil. Shell oil, or fracked product, is our number one export in the United States, and it's been that way for the last couple of years. Uh, the Obama administration talked about creating uh, economic growth zones in shell oil, which has happened. So I'm not blaming Obama, it's just the reality of uh, energy security for the United States. And those petrodollars aren't going to places that fund terrorism is, you know, one of the pro-oil arguments that's, are, that's out there. So in that way, it's a good thing. But the level of growth needed for that is not so great. So right now, there are roughly eight shell oil trains a week that come through the Twin Cities. They also go through Chicago. They work their way down to the Gulf. They work their way out to Albany, New York, and also the train that went through Lot Magantic was working its way to one of the major oil refineries in uh, St. John, New Brunswick. That is a high level of volume of hazardous materials that are being shipped across the United States. And Minnesota in particular has ethanol, which comes from corn. And that also is uh, extremely volatile hazardous material. One of my concerns is that these rail lines, I, I've worked with um, a really wonderful local organization. It started in uh, Wisconsin, and there's a Twin Cities chapter called CARS, Citizens Acting for Rail Safety. 
And CARS is extremely concerned. They also work with uh, river keepers about ethanol because these rail lines can't be moved away from the cities. One of the things they worked to initially try to do is after the Lac Megantic accident is to get them away from urban centers. But it's cost prohibitive. The rail lines, the rail companies will not do it. Um, It costs a million dollars just uh, per mile to have a rail bypass. It's very, very expensive. And the way the rail lines were laid out initially 150 years ago is right along our major waterways. So we have uh, the BNSF line that comes through the Twin Cities, and it falls right along the Mississippi River to go to the Northern Tier refinery outside of St. Paul. And if there was an accident there, that would pollute the daily water of 3 million people. So uh, shell oil will kill anything it touches. It will kill all aquatic life, and ethanol is nearly as bad. It's impossible to remove out of uh, aqueous substance like the Mississippi River, and it will asphyxiate the aquatic life that comes into contact with it. And there's also generational problems if there's a spill into water. Uh, The Exxon Valdez spill uh, taught us that there are genetic changes that happen to biological life when it interacts with a hydrocarbon-like oil. So the orca populations have not recovered from that accident, and that was in the mid-'80s. Half the fish populations have not recovered in that area of Alaska, in um, Prudhoe Bay, I think it was, in uh, in Alaska for the Exxon Valdez spill. So it's uh, extremely damaging to a biological life. One of the other things to look at is oil as a social and biological penetrator. So we mostly work today we're talking about the cultural impacts of oil, and I'm not... um, I'm not a biologist, obviously. I'm a communication scholar. So we look at how it affects uh, uh, people's daily lives. There's much debate across the nation over whether to build new oil pipelines. And while there are environmental risks with pipelines, supporters argue pipelines actually carry less risk than trains and, of course, uh, possible train derailments. How do disasters like what happened in Loch Megantic affect how the public and the oil industry thinks about safety and environmental concerns? And is there a safer way to transport oil? One of the things I realized when I was uh, researching these accidents One of the things I look at is uh, the major publications like New York Times, LA Times, Star Tribune. And those comment sections are important because they can help form public opinion. And during these reports, there were four in a series of four months uh, in the winter of uh, 2014 to 2015. The studies on the rail grade aren't very clear. One of the concerns is uh, when there's a sustained minus 20 Celsius temperatures, what that does to the rail grade, because all of these accidents were from the rail grade, and um, it's called a Y-gauge scenario, where either there's a crack in the rail or uh, one of the railroad ties breaks, and then the train derails because it doesn't maintain the width necessary to keep the wheels on the track. The quick and dirty answer is there's no safe way to transport oil. It always leaks, whether it's in a rail car or a pipeline. So to go back, so in the LA Times and New York Times, one of the things I discovered was that the pro-pipeline voices moved up to the top of the comments section. And this was before we understood the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, Russia, and Cambridge Analytics, and how social media can be hijacked by political interests or pro-corporate interests or pro-industry interests. And I talked to the Sierra Club about this, and it would be really awesome if they could afford to have somebody monitor social media with hazmat conversations or pro-oil conversations. 
I used to run a website, and I've seen through personal experience uh, in my research against uh, Wall Street practices, which was part of my master's work, that uh, the major banks and insurance companies and law firms would hijack my comment threads on my website to take over the conversation. I think the same thing was happening with uh, anti-oil conversations, which became pro-pipeline conversations because the Keystone XL was still up in the air at the time. So those conversations were always, we need to use pipelines, we need to build more pipelines, pipelines build jobs. It's impossible to talk about the environment and separate the economy from it, which is a really frustrating thing um, as a scholar. And they would advocate the pipelines were safer. So on the face of it, they are safer because they don't blow up in catastrophic ways like a freight train of 100 tanker cars. You know, in the Loch Maganta case, it was 72 cars and only nine of them did not spill, explode, or vent toxic uh, fumes into the community. Uh, but they do leak. Every pipeline leaks. And guess what? Most pipelines are near waterways or groundwater. And um, fracking also is extremely hazardous to groundwater. Those wells... Some data is showing that uh, within 10 years, half of all whales will fracture. And um, even if they're capped, the caustic materials necessary to break apart, you know, a, a fracked well is basically breaking apart slate like a chalkboard to get the carbons that are trapped in that geological uh, substance. And so there's very volatile chemicals involved uh, in fracking. It's not just water and sand, but it's also proprietary chemicals the industry will not generally released to the public. Um, and those work their way into the waterways. And we would know more about it, but there are so many lawsuits involved when uh, ranchers are poisoned, their well water is poisoned, and their cows die. Homeowners have their well water poisoned. And there's lots of cases in Texas and um, Pennsylvania of uh, multi-generational families having their groundwater poisoned and then having to truck in water when they already run a beautiful source of fresh, clean water. And so when an oil or gas company poisons that water, they have a non-disclosure agreement as part of a settlement process with those families not to talk about what happened. So that's a part of the problem of this conversation as well. The public doesn't fully realize the scope of what our daily lifestyle is doing to our physical environment. You see a connection between oil and violence. How do these intersect? Another really tough question. Um, Okay, the easy answer is to look at the Middle East. We, uh, Dick Cheney said that we will be at war for the rest of our lifetime. And if all the... Former vice president under uh, George W. Bush. Correct. And also Donald Rumsfeld, our secretary of defense, uh, parroted the same statement um, during the Bush administration. And of all the, all the things he said, that's one of the things that I really believe is true and they were being honest about. When we go back to that scarcity-based model, the scarcity-based way of thinking that there's a, you know, we live on a planet with finite resources, with a finite resource, it causes a lot of violence and struggle. Do you take any natural resource, whether it's um, cadmium that goes into our cell phones or coal or uranium production, uh, oil, there's violence involved with all of these substances, um, which is why I think advocating for wind, water, and solar when you have freely available natural sources of cleaner energy that would take, that would move us away from the merchants of death, uh, it, it would be a wonderful thing. 
And, and also, you know, we will see another explosive train derailment, and I hope it's not in a major urban center. But the Twin Cities have 10 times the population density of Loch Megantic. So just back of the envelope rough math is 500 people. The state has recognized the Como Avenue crossing as the most at-risk railroad intersection in the Twin Cities. And that's next to several schools, a prison, and a couple hospitals and fire stations. And the fire chief has stated that the only thing they can do is try and help people get out of that area because they can't stop the fire from burning. They are so violent in the amount of energy that they have to burn themselves out. So speaking of energy, when you have a, a train, a unit train of 100 cars full of shell oil, that's equivalent of five Hiroshimas of thermal energy. Five Hiroshima, I'm not saying that that's, you know, the kinetic energy of a bomb blast, but the heat energy, raw BTUs, is tremendous. Many people do not think we can give up our energy dependence on oil and that green and renewable sources of energy cannot produce enough energy to meet our demands. How do you address these concerns? Well, Stanford has shot that down. Stanford University, I think it's almost at least five years going back now, they had an amazing $100 million research effort to see if the United States could get off of coal, natural gas, and oil. And they realized that, yes, we can actually run our grids by 2035 on wind, water, and solar. We have the technological ability to do that. We don't have the political will, and we probably don't have the finance capital with business-as-usual practices to do that. But it is technically and physically possible to completely divorce yourself from um, dirty energy. And then for the transportation side, which is one-third of the pie, the problem with that would be the airlines. They do have the ability to run on biofuel, but it's, it's extremely expensive. But a jet engine can run on, for a while, it can run on anything. It can run on isopropyl alcohol. It can run on raw kerosene. It can run on gasoline for a little bit. So it's not one of those debatable things in, in science that it can or can't be done. It can be done. And they've realized that by 2050, the United States could be completely green. The other thing is that uh, to counter this debate, Volvo will stop producing gasoline-powered and diesel vehicles within the next couple of years. Uh, several countries, including France and Germany, will stop producing and allowing diesel vehicles, particularly for trucking, uh, by 2035, and the United Kingdom is also online with that, is particularly London, is already starting to put heavy fines for diesel vehicles because of the pollution it's caused. We also have Elon Musk, who's created a completely new market for electric vehicles, which is, if you can't win in their backyard, make a new backyard. Christian DeAngelich is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Minnesota. Christian, thank you so much for joining us on Access Minnesota. Thanks, Christian, and thanks to Access Minnesota for allowing us to use the interview on our podcast. That ends the 2018 winter-spring season of the Public Lands podcast. Until our next encounter, I hope you have a chance to get out and enjoy a public land or park near you. And given what is happening to our public lands, maybe make it to a public hearing or two to have your voice heard. Without that, we'll have far fewer and far different public lands for ourselves and certainly for the many generations yet to come.